1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and today's show, folks, we are privileged and honored to have Matthew Burgess, our Verisage colleague, on the line.
2: But first, Ron, how's it going? Good, Ed. I love all Verisage shows.
1: Yes, I know they, they require less preparation than others because we know these people well. So there's an added bonus in that from yep. a timing perspective. But but uh, our next guest Matthew has uh, quite the interesting background, and we're going to get to it. Um, feeling a little bit hampered this week, Ron. I have one of my monitors go down on me, and it's a it's definitely 21st century problem. But I'm down to one monitor. I mean, do oh, you feel geez. bad for me? I no, know. I do. I do. Uh, especially since I know you've had like massive computer problems. You don't have a
2: computer at all. So it was good. <laughs> I don't, I'm working <laughs> off a little laptop. So, you know, I don't yeah, feel well, bad, Ed, but I get we'll it. Str-
1: we'll struggle by, we'll struggle by. Okay. Well, let's bring our guest, Matthew on Matthew. Welcome to the soul of enterprise. So glad to have you on with us today.
3: Ed, thank you. Thank you to you and Ron for uh, the invitation. Great to be here.
1: And you became a fellow back in 2007. Is that right? Of the
3: Verisage Institute? I think that is right. It's uh, in, in your hometown there, downtown Texas.
1: Yeah, yes, there you go. When, when we were honored and pleased to have you, I wanted to go go through some of your bankra- background. Because, first of all, as, as I was mentioning just before we started recording, you have probably the most interesting and unusual LinkedIn profile that I've ever accomplished. You go all the way back to grade school <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> It's all about the content, Ed.
1: It is, it is all about the content. But but it makes sense because you are the author of some children's books, which we'll get to in later episodes. So I think it makes perfect sense that you go that far back in, in your past. But in all seriousness, talk a little bit about how would you get here today? What, what, what possessed you to get into the law and all that stuff? What's, give me the Matthew, Matthew Burgess background story.
3: Yeah, and, and please cut me off, uh, like a very well-trained lawyer can turn a, a very simple question into a long answer. So please cut me off for you and Ron as you see fit, but yeah, very standard, uh, didn't didn't do much else at school other than uh, English, or well at much else other than English, realised I needed to be a lawyer, got through law school quickly, got into a, a big law firm, as defined, and... Uh, yeah, had had a really lucky run of it. Ed, I was um, my main specialisation, and I've said this before. My main specialisation was filling in chargeable units on the timesheet. I didn't much care what, where they came from or what's wrong. No one's ever complained about a chargeable unit or where it comes from. And uh, yeah, so and and I think my what I was a little bit famous for, certainly at that firm, was racking up. You know, somewhere between 2,700 and 3,000 chargeable hours a year and, and not really making too many of them up, if at all. So that that was a journey that in the middle of that process, got sort of become the youngest of a partner at that firm and, and got all the way through the system quite quickly by about the age of 30. And, and someone handed me a copy of this book, you may have heard of it, called Firm of the Future. And it, it's a little bit like at the time, it didn't make sense because all I knew was working 12 to 18 hours, you know, every single day of the week. But this idea that you didn't have to fill in a timesheet and you could still deliver value and provide a service to your customers was um, took me about two or three years, but eventually, eventually got it, and that would be sort of mid 2000s, I guess, and and then started the journey towards value pricing, and then ultimately to subscription.
1: Yes, yeah, so and we'll definitely talk about that because we Ron and I, as you know, have been talking about subscription for the last oh 18 to 24 months. And then as we've had further conversations, we realized that, well, you've been doing it for, you know, four or five plus years. So, and we just didn't even recognize it. So you were well ahead of that curve. But let's let's jump back a little to the to the big law uh, field. So you read, read Firm of the Future and you said it was a two-year journey. What, what was that process like? Did, did, was it a sudden realization or was it just over time that you came to this conclusion that, hey, this is nuts, 18 hours a day? It's not gonna work for me much longer.
3: Yeah, I mean the the irony was that yeah, as you having got all the way to effectively the top of that game, and then sort of stopping and saying, Well, hang on, how how can I actually improve? How can I deliver more? There are only so, physically so many hours in every day. And that that combined with them, I mean, if you've got to remember dating all of us probably a little bit here, I mean, there was no there was no the soul of Enterprise, there was no mm-hmm. tribe, there was no community, there was no internet even to really trying to find out what the answers might be. So for someone to have dropped you know, serendipity or luck or, or a higher force to have dropped that into my lab. But then to be inside a model where that only thing, the only thing that counted were the chargeable hours, uh, it, it just, I, I, my brain was not big enough to be able to process those two completely contradictory ideas in quick time, in isolation. There was no support community around that. And so that uh, it, it was difficult in isolation and not being the smartest person and also being you know what, what what's the old i think it's the Suskin line it's it's difficult convincing a millionaire a bunch of people million earning over a million bucks a year that their business model's wrong and that uh that that for me personally was was part of that journey to try to get to that understanding but of course the minute you do open it, it open your mind up to it well then all of a sudden everything changes like everything that you what we had been doing was was just blindingly wrong and it and it was starting to change that inside a firm that was extraordinary extraordinarily successful and so that you know it's a very isolating position to be in really looking back. So did you try to change it inside the firm for a while? Absolutely I I gave it probably four to five years of my life uh, to to try to do that and and failed spectacularly. uh, I I often share the story we we did we the last year I was there we convinced them that we could remove the timesheets in our little division but because we were what does Tim Williams call it? we were a full-service firm, <laughs> whatever, whatever full-service <laughs> actually means. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so whenever anything went out of our little silo, the, the computer system, we had to upload the, the fixed price that had been agreed into the computer system, and you'd send it out to another area that was on timesheets, and say it was a $5,000 matter, uh, they would come in and, and they would do a part that you, know, you and I would say, well, you know, maybe it's $1,000 a chargeable time without fail, and this isn't once or twice, this has been 30 or 40 times without fail, the time recorded would come back at $4,990. And then you'd be in this sort of extraordinary debate between, you know, is our little team allowed to charge $10 for the value that we've added, or, or are we effectively having to accuse another, you know, reputable great lawyer of padding out their time just to suck up all of the, uh, the fixed price agreed. So it was not culturally, yeah, you know, there's the debate that you and Ron had about whether timesheets need to be eliminated, and and certainly I can only speak to my experience. I, I can't see how you can move towards any other model other than time billing if you're going to retain the timesheet.
1: And was that the was that was that the the build up over time, or was there one incident that was the coup de grace for you?
3: Awesome question. I think it was everything and that. If that makes sense, so I, I think if, if that if that chain of events hadn't happened where we were just constantly finding our, our fixed prices have been completely consumed by almost this cancer growth, if you like, of the time being recorded, I, maybe we would have found another pathway. but combined with everything else, I mean our, our mantra once we did get out is we we took the big law model and we just did the exact opposite. So they have timesheets, we don't have timesheets. They have strict policies around holiday leave, et cetera. We don't have any of that. They have individual budgets and firm budgets. We don't have any of those. We, we don't even, you know, we certainly don't have fancy office space and the marble floors and, and all the other things that are renowned, you know, around the world with what, what defines a big law firm
1: and i know ron ron wants to dig in on all of those things with you so i'll i'll leave that to him in the sec- second segment but talk to me a little bit about the, the the transition did you just say i'm i'm gone fellas i'm i'm moving on or did you ha- have this plan for uh, creating well i guess it was it, it was e-lawyer first and then it's since become view legal is that right
3: Yeah and this this starts to drag into an interplay between a few different ideas there because eLawyer was very much the technology play so it was how do we again inspired by thinkers like Suskind how do we take technology and enable a different kind of service delivery and a different kind of value proposition for the customer Uh, but that that was only one part of a wider discussion which was well how do we run a firm that's timeless and and I think Ed so to answer your question directly, yes, it started probably about eighteen months before I ultimately left. Uh, that at that point, it was agreed that we would trial being not on timesheets, and, and as i have explain to you, that ended up being a spectacular disaster. And then, and then, bearing in mind, I'd been at this firm ever since I'd left college, and I, you know, I was absolutely had signed up for life. So it was a very Traumatic experience, I think, for me and, and everyone working around me. But we we also knew it was right, both for the incumbent firm because they have remained even almost five or six years later now. They have remained very much the time billing firm, and and I imagine very very successful in the space. Uh, but culturally, it, it's what's the Drucker quote? You know, culture eat strategy for, for lunch or whatever it is. The right. the, the dynamic between the time billing and they. Value pricing is—it's you know—it's 180 degrees. It's just that stark that that I I lack the skills to be able to run that style of operation inside a big law machine. Okay, so that was so e
1: lawyer was then within within your your previous firm, and then v- view legal is now where you where you're at, and that's the firm you founded in August of 2014. And did were you independent at that time, or did you have a couple partners right away?
3: Yeah, we, so we, there were a bunch of us that rolled out that that were true believers, if you like, in the value of pricing piece and and also true believers in the idea that technology could be a true enabler to deliver a different kind of solution. And it look, I think, without name-checking too many Verisage people, but people like, you know, particularly Moores down in Australia, John Chisholm and then obviously the two of you and then Tim Williams, I mean, if you go back through previous episodes and listen to some of their thinking, particularly, say, Tim Williams, our idea... With the e-lawyer model, which was you know labelled as the first virtual law firm in the world, I, I think in reality what it was was the first law firm that didn't have a, math, a fax machine. Uh, but be, be that as it may, uh, the the idea with it was well, how can you be you know 100% in the cloud, 100% on your iPhone, and still deliver a legal solution? And when we thought of that through the lens of what Tim Williams talks to us all about, is well, yes, you can probably. Be across a market, like say a little bit like an Apple. You can be right down at the iPod Shuffle, and then all the way up at the um, you know the fifteen thousand dollar Apple Watch, and 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 at every price point in between, as long as you're very deeply specialised in both the way that you deliver your product, and also the the type of product that you're delivering. So, in our space, we're we're purely estate planning, but we offer estate planning at, at the brain surgery level as well as the you know the Kmart. Uh, bulk discount level as well.
1: Great. Well, that's great. Great background for us. And we're up against our first break already. Time flies by here. But want to remind our audience that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at com. Of course, we do offer show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows at the Soul of Enterprise. And ser- definitely hit us up on Twitter during the show or at any time during the week. We love to answer your questions. So the hashtag is asktsoe. But right now, a word from our sponsor.
4: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program, this program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com.
4: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with our Bear Sage colleague, Matthew Burgess. And Matthew, I was poking around your website. You know, I, we feel privileged because we Verisage I always say we have the most innovative accounting firm which is O'Byrne and Kennedy Paul Kennedy uh, out of uh, London and now for sure since uh, 2017 we've had the most innovative law firm in the world which is View Legal your firm and I was poking around your website and I loved your why can you can you describe your why and how you even got to that framework
3: well, for the, for the Greg Quiets online playing uh, Verisage bingo, he should be almost at the end of his game because I'll, I'll name check another one here. Uh, someone you may know, uh, well being Paul Dunn, he, he uh, went out of his way. Um, We're just very lucky to to be part of this community. He went out of his way to, to invest in us trying to get to the right way. And, and look, it's evolved a little bit. It probably still is evolving, but it, in a sentence, it's and a law firm that is for friends. So in other words, a law firm that you would actually be happy to have your friends and family go and engage with and, and refer to because, um, you know, as, as a polar opposite extreme, I'd stopped using the law firm that I worked at, you know, probably six or seven years before I ended up leaving there because it did just, it was extraordinarily expensive. It was a terrible UX for me because you'd enter into a situation with, you know, a broad quote that you, the only thing you knew for sure was that the, the quote was going to be exceeded. It was just how quickly would it be succeeded or exceeded, I should say, uh, before the matter was actually finished and, you know, charge out rates over a thousand dollars an hour in, in between. So it, that, that was our mantra. How can we find a way to actually have people want to refer their friends and family into our business?
2: Right. No, I, I love that. And then, you know, it's, it's worth repeating, uh, you, and you say this under your vision too, but you guys are doing very complex tax, trust, estate planning, business sta- sales, succession planning. I mean, this isn't just generic law. This is something that's highly technical, and it takes a lot of skill to, to work in this niche. And you were able to pull off the type of why that you'd want to refer your friends or family to.
3: Yeah. And look, without saying the obvious answer, I mean, the, the, the value pricing to us and fixed pricing in advance has, has been an enormous part of that. I mean, I, to have clarity at the start of the process is, you know, to us that that's a really, really important part of the value equation and one that, that resonates no matter what price point the customer actually is. And, it, you know, the airplane analogy is often used, but for us, we've just fully embraced that. Whether we're doing the, you know, someone in the top 10% of, of high net wealth people in the country at the very, very front of the airplane, or we're, we're doing a mum and dad situation that, that may not require quite as much brain surgery, if you like. The idea is that everyone will, will land safely. And our job is to, you know, to use the experience economy analogy to, to tailor the experience to exceed their expectations and still deliver a, a profitable outcome to our business.
2: And then you have a table, uh, right below your vision, which is our approach. And you contrast in this table, the old view with view legals approach, which I love. And there's, we could spend the rest of the show on this, Matthew, but I just want to ask you a couple, because you also put this in one of your books as well, this table. Uh, I think it's in laws for life. Um, and, and we'll talk about your books probably in the last segment, but I got to ask you about this. you, The old view of law says you bill clients on hourly rates and have no particular interest in client perception of value, which is so true, but then view legal's approach is that customers are provided an upfront SPS guarantee that is a service and price satisfaction is guaranteed with all work undertaking following upfront fixed pricing. Explain how the guarantee works and and what impact it's had on your customers
3: and and again you talk about value pricing being a journey ron and i, I think this example is is probably the one of the best examples because it, it certainly wasn't there at the start it was one of those things that we knew we'd read all the literature uh we we'd read everything you'd ever written and we knew that it should be there but i just we just couldn't get our brains around how that actually worked uh we ripped the band-aid off we just did it and it, it's probably been the single one of the single most important things that we've done for a myriad of reasons. And, and again, we can only speak to our experience. But firstly, as you say, you, even in a time billing world, we were basically doing it anyway. Like if, if a customer complained loudly and high and up off the value chain inside the firm, then you were, you were going to give it you know, some sort of money back or discount or, or agreed final price anyway. And then, secondly, it just takes so much of the risk out of the equate the buying decision risk out for the customer that it has just paid us back in spades. Now, we have uh, had I think four situations now, so in six almost six years, call it five and a half years, four situations where we've had to pay out on them. In every single situation, I mean, it it was absolutely we we had just performed terribly. And not only do we give the full refund, we then complete the project as well to the customer's satisfaction. So it's almost like, a, on one view, it's like a 200% if there is such a thing, um, money-back guarantee, because we we, we fix what we should have fixed, and then we also ensure the customer doesn't actually physically pay us any money to do so.
2: Well, thanks for anticipating my next question. I was going to ask you if anybody has pulled the trigger, but let me ask you a follow-up to that that's rarely talked about when the trigger is pulled, and you do have to compensate the customer. One of the benefits is you get to fix the underlying problem that happened. Is is that been your experience?
3: Yes, it is. I, I would, and actually, I should give one disclaimer. And this is literally this week. You can't write this stuff. So we've had we had a couple early on when our systems and processes were not right. We've had sort of one in between, and in each of those three, yes, absolutely wrong. We went back and fixed the issue. With this last one, uh, it, it just wasn't the right fit. They were an extremely high net wealth customer. They were trying to push through not just in the economy class of the airplane, but almost in, uh, you know, in the baggage section. Uh, and the risk that we were going to take on as an organization using effectively automated computer solutions in in something that was actually highly bespoke and and required human involvement was just the fit was not right. So we. Invoke Baker's Law, which again is just another thing that that in our experience it never happens on a time billing firm. It can only happen in a value price firm, uh, and we just sacked the client, it gave them their money back, um, gave them all the the documents and material that we'd prepared to date, but we said they needed to be with a different service provider that was more aligned with with what they were wanting to do. Brilliant.
2: It, having that guarantee does make you a little bit more selective about who you take on, doesn't it?
3: Exactly, and it, and it, the thing is, Ron, it just it just permutates through the entire organisation because the the mindset of the team members. That, it was a highly abusive relationship that uh, this one in the last week, very very aggressive, p- picking on team members that didn't really have a lot of experience and and were really just trying to help. Now, in a time billing firm, we would still everyone would have doubled down. It would have just got worse and worse and worse, and then everyone's time would have got written off, and that that would have just created such a demoralising environment for the entire team. Whereas here we, we celebrate on the Friday afternoon, we have an H, HSD, was we we got to, in a polite and respectful way, exit this customer to, to another firm that would be a better fit.
2: Brilliant. And, and I'm not going in, in the tables order here, Matthew. I'm going to jump down to the bottom, but it, old law goes revenue growth is the number one goal and view legal is exceeding customer expectations is the number one goal. And I just absolutely love that because if you do that then the old law's goals kind of taken care of isn't
3: it yeah exactly and look that that is you've picked out a really key one ron that is aspirational i, I don't know that we necessarily get there as often as we would like if at all but it's also uh, someone shot me the note the other day that the old maester rule of how to grow a successful business and uh his rule was it's a little bit like berkshire hathaway his rule is rule one uh always ensure that you're delivering everything you possibly can to your current customers before you start searching for new customers and then rule 2 is you will never deliver all the services you can to your current customers right. and the beauty of that is that if you are exceeding expectations and doing an exquisite job on what's in front of you generally what starts to happen is that those customers become your advocates and all of a sudden you are picking up new customers but you haven't done anything else other than making sure you've doubled down on your existing uh, existing opportunities,
2: right? I think I've got a line I use from Astra all the time. You have no business getting new clients if you're not taking, ex, you know, exceeding your current customers' expectations. Um, another one on this table that I just love because diversity is such a, a hot topic now in the professional firm space. And you say under old law that constant focus on the need for diversity of gender, and view legal's approach is only focus on diversity of thought. Uh, I'm preaching to the choir here, Matthew, but what do you mean by that?
3: Oh, it um, you're, you're, There's a whole session on that, isn't there? There's a whole episode on that, and then maybe you guys have already done it. I, the, the idea that uh, diversity, and, and it is, it tends to be, because they have all these quotas, right, particularly in Australia, where they, they, they go out and make it their headline to say, well, we've got 23.78% uh, female gender equality, whatever that phrase means, uh, without for a minute thinking about well, if if you are all uh, can only see a way to deliver a value proposition by the number of chargeable hours you record, well, what, what does it matter whether you've got 50, 50, 23, 67 or whatever else in between, uh, You're you're almost by definition staring down a very dark tunnel in terms of where that model's going to end. And that the irony, I think, for us, Ron, and I didn't notice this, I think, until uh, the when we had the Age down under, that, you know, when when we do the roll call of our place, uh, we've got a we've got a gender diversity problem as well. We've got something like 85% female and 15% male. Now, part of the reason for that is that the big law model, you just you can't actually do uh, anything else other than record a whole lot of chargeable time, and most women are either too smart or have too many other things in their life going on that they want to do that. Yeah. So, even though we've even though we've got a gender diversity problem, I think that our, um, our actual diversity is unbelievable because we've got people that live in the farming community, we've got people who live in the middle of town, we've got another person that is on a, a non stop world tour. Uh, that and just works from every different location as they get there. Well, the the amount of experience and ideas and thought provoking discussion that is generated by having all these unbelievably unique experiences is is off the charts. And I, I couldn't care if we we're 100% female or 100% male. If you've got all that different thought coming in, then you tick the uh, diversity box without even trying.
2: Right. And, and Matthew, we've only got a, we got about a minute, not even. But I love this one old losses, intellectual property is how we make money and should be guarded jealouslessly and intellectual and your view is intellectual property is how we create trust it should be shared freely and i love that philosophy because i think paul arden wrote this in one of his books where he said i give away all my intellectual capital that forces me to replenish it and it seems like you guys have the same view
3: publish shall perish absolutely absolutely yeah
2: i that's just Absolutely brilliant. Well, Matthew, this has been great. I just knew this would fly by and I know Ed's going to have some detailed questions for you on your subscription pricing model. Cause we certainly want to talk about that in the meantime, folks, check out the soul of for full show notes. We'll post uh, what we know about Matthew, but there's a lot more to know because this, this gentleman has written 23 books out there. And uh, if you want to go out to iTunes and give us a review, That would be wonderful. And now we want to hear from our sponsors.
1: The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. And just a quick reminder that we also offer bonus episodes on our Patreon site at patreon.com slash TSOE. And Matthew has agreed to stay on for us and he's going to record the bonus show with us. So if you are uh, hankering for more conversation with Matthew Burgess, founder of Legals, stick around and join our Patreon site and you'll be able to hear that as well. Matthew, before we move on to talking about subscription, I wanted to ask you about one more of your... Bullets under the approach because it's something that's near and dear to to my heart, being a, a former project manager around IT in the IT space, and that is this notion that quality in the, in the old view of old law, quality is defined by the firm. In your mind, in view legal's mind, quality is defined by the customer, and I think that there's a lot of lawyers who and other professionals, but specifically lawyers who have a big problem with that one.
3: It's a Interesting question, Ned, particularly back to what you were touching on before in terms of that that journey to exit big law. And you said, well, was that the defining moment? And I I said sort of yes, but I'd actually say this one as well. That, and look, this is a generalisation. I'm sure this isn't all big lawyers, but but my experience is with a lot of big lawyers is there's almost this moral supremacist view that if, unless you're charging a thousand bucks an hour and you're doing it in the way that you've always done it and the way you believe it needs to be done, then it must be incompetent and that everyone's going to get sued because you've done such a poor job and that 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 permutates through the entire big law industry in our experience and, and the minute you stop and and I, I this is why i love the airplane analogy so so well because it's not as if when you jump on the airplane at the back of the airplane that you're somehow at, at an exponential risk of the quality being significantly less and that that's certainly always been the way we've approached it since we've been timeless and it to us it goes to the very heart of the value proposition that we're creating for the customer we we go out of labor on touched on the books i mean the one of the big things that we did when we got out is we wanted to liberate all of the ip that we've built up over the years and do it in a way where people could see firsthand actually these guys are super serious about quality and not only are they serious about quality they're serious about having a discussion about how to make that quality even better because they're publishing their knowledge out into the domain and, and letting people critique it and that That is a non-negotiable for us but it's a completely different question as to what the customer experience is and and how they define the quality and therefore how they define the price that they want to pay to access that service
1: yeah absolutely and that's uh, philip crosby in his book i believe it was called quality is free mentions this as one of his four absolutes of quality and this the, the understanding that quality is defined by the the customer is, is one of those things and such a crucial point. I mean, we're not, you're not saying that. And as you said, the, the plane analogy is a good one that if you get on a plane and and have to sit in the back, that we're also going to make sure that you, uh, you, you crash, you crash instead of land, right? You're still, you're still going to get the same basic service, which is to get, safely from A to B that's the quality notion of it but it's it is the experience of how you get there and if you want to pay for a better experience you can sit up front but if you still want to get there but you know have to sit next to the old lady that's going to hit the call button 17 times then that's your choice as well right so
3: <laughs> exactly exactly
1: yeah. yeah so let's let's talk about subscription be, and this is one area and as i mentioned in the in the beginning segment that you were well ahead of, of even Ron and myself and other thinkers at Verisage on this whole notion of, of subscription. So let's, let's talk a little bit about this because one of the things that Ron and I heard, well, I, I heard specifically down there when I did my presentation on subscription is that subscription can't work in law. There's I mean, there was a lot of pushback even from Verisage people about that. So I wonder if you could just share with us your notion of what does subscription mean to you? What does that And how is that different from just pure value-based pricing?
3: Yeah, and look, my big disclaimer, like all law firms is, I, or, law, or lawyers, is that we do not feel as though we've got this right in. And having started it early, I think, I'm hoping it's ultimately going to be an advantage, but the reality is it, it's a little bit like when we first were given firm of the future. There, there wasn't a lot of the community around, and we, we've made an astronomical number of mistakes. The, the first one, which goes to the heart of your question, was not really understanding the difference between having a retainer So, someone paying paying a monthly amount to be able to access unlimited legal solutions as compared to a subscription model, which for us is one that can be scaled at an exponential rate to the number of human resources that are actually going to be used to deliver that service. And that, that was something that we just didn't get. So, our very early iteration was legal products. So you know, trusts and corporation setups and estate plans and products that were relevant to our specialisation that you could effectively acquire. So we copied off Pizza Hut. So if you remember back when, you know, (laughs) a generation or two ago when Pizza Hut, you could go to Pizza Hut and you pay one amount and you could eat all that you would like. So all you can eat, uh, legal product access. But the problem with us was that the more that people consumed, the more legal resources and humans that we were needing to put into that and in fact what was happening was the the more money we were actually losing through the process so it was it was very very successful from a customer's perspective not quite as successful from a uh, being able to maintain a sustainable business perspective at our end
1: and so what adjustments did you need to make then to make it to make it sustainable for both you and your customers
3: well, there are a number of things. The first thing was, and again, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this in this forum, was that the, the idea of just offering discounted and uh, access to product was not a winning strategy. And when we even used the word discount in, in a lot of our promotional materials. So we started iterating the language away from what we were doing. And then secondly, we were, we were very, very focused on using technology as the enabler. So in other words, making sure that as more, customers came in as subscribers or or members, if you like, of the community, that that didn't require a one-for-one addition of of additional legal talent, that we were able to actually use technology to break that nexus, if you like, and allow more and more people to come in without having too much of an overinvestment in terms of the actual legal skills sitting behind that.
1: So the, the whole notion of allowing your price then justify the expenditure of costs in the future, and this allowed you to then create, from a technological perspective, a better experience for those customers coming on.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, it, and look, a part of it was informed by, and this is where, I mean, this is where when you talk about it, Ed, in terms of value pricing 2.0, I mean, it. There are some things that are, uh, my personal view is it's very hard to get to subscription unless you've lived and breathed and successfully run a value pricing organisation. But mm. there are some things that you, you absolutely need to leave behind and really think very carefully about before you move forward. Because, you know, if you if you think about it at that membership level for us, we had to be very, very careful to actually start with a price point or actually three price points, but, but with product that could be delivered into that price point and still be a value proposition that the customer wanted to sign up for and stay signed up for but then also we were actually had a margin in there that we were, we were profitable as well and that that for us was quite a lot different to value pricing because it, like if you think about it you know, particularly with a lot of Ron's literature I mean in value pricing we'll quite often look for the, the, the you know the platinum standard which is pump fist So the price that is anchors it so far out there that it may only be chosen one every 20 times, but it's really dragging that value proposition to the very, very nth degree. Well, for us today, we've been unable to work out how do you create a pump fist solution in a subscription model? And I don't know that we've got the answer to that just yet. Mm. Yeah, it might might be, and Ron and I have talked about
1: this, might be that we also have to combine subscription with what some, something that Ron's
3: talked about for years,
1: which is the tip clause.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and but again, that, there are a whole lot of systems and processes and thinking around that, which, which is, a, you know, they're greenfields. It's a completely new frontier for us anyway, to try to build a model that actually works.
1: And have you done anything since you've been on, and let me ask this question first before we get there. What, if you had to break your revenue down by percentage that are on uh, subscription versus percentage that are more, let's call it standard fixed pricing, um, what, can you give me a percentage on that?
3: Wow. Uh, Now, so can I be a lawyer on this and say you wanting a percentage of actual revenue or percentage of customers because it's a radically, radically different number. To, Whichever to send, you feel most most comfortable giving. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me, let me give you both, but in the order of uncomfortableness to more comfortable. <laughs> so, the, in terms of revenue, it would be. Uh, and look, our model has changed even in the last quarter on this, Ed. So, we, in terms of our the firm revenue, it's probably less than ten percent still. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of number of customers, particularly in our technology business, well, it's it's almost up to 100% because what we've done, we've ripped the Band-Aid off again. And we've basically said that if you want to be in our online solution so that the part of the the product suite that allows people to be further towards the back of the plane, you've got to be a member because like it's non-negotiable now. Before, it was a discretionary thing but we've actually ripped that band-aid off and said you've got to be a monthly subscriber to even get into the solution uh, and then we can talk about what other su- services we might be able to provide from there
1: okay so i see so it's it's really a a dual gated model it's the it's the movie theater
3: popcorn situation C- correct in that in that part of the business it is now is our aspirational goal to make it entirely membership based and entirely subscription based yes it is but again we're at that at the moment we're at the point where our technology doesn't allow us to scale the day-to-day work in a way that allows it at the moment to be subscription based but that's a you know for us we're talking well ideally within the next 12 months that'll be fully subscription as well
1: and if if you had a, a model that you were looking at is there a particular you said Pizza Hut initially but has you if, if you looked at some other industries say uh, Amazon Prime or um, some of the other subscription models that are out there uh, D- disney uh, club C- club 33 are there any that you look to that you are are you using to to base what your your future is on uh,
3: yeah absolutely mean, it's the old the jobs or what even the picasso the, the good artist borrow and the great artists still i mean we're we're just incessantly looking around the, the most successful one that we've been involved with in, and, and just to speak some raw numbers i mean we if you just looked in Australia, and I imagine it's similar in the US to set up a trust or a corporation, we might have been doing, uh, I don't know, uh, say 3,000 of those a year under our prior to subscription model. When we partnered with an IT company that had a very strong distribution channel in doing those, that sometimes we were doing 3,000 of those a day, and that was entirely subscription-based. So we've certainly looked uh, very, very closely at what resonated in that market. If you look at a lot of the, you know, if you use Xero as an example, that, that's getting a footprint worldwide in the accounting space, uh, their their software as a service model, I think, you know, ultimately what they've got is intellectually, intellectual property underneath that. Now it's been enabled by technology, but I think the analogies for all of us, and, and you use Amazon and, and Apple and and Disney and everything else, I mean, they're, they're, they're creating underlying digitalized. IP and finding ways to create a membership model around that. So that's certainly been at the heart of, and and Ron's touched on our books, I mean, we've looked at ways of bringing all of that content into an ecosystem that's digitalized, and then hosting that in a way, adding an experience on top of it in terms of human involvement, but having that foundational content to allow the community to, to sort of be there in the first place. Great.
1: Well, thanks. Well, we are up against our next break and I want to thank you, Matthew, for appearing today. Ron's going to take you the rest of the way home on the regular episode and I'll talk to you on the bonus episode. But right now, I want to remind you, you get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to ask TSOE at Verisage uh, I want to remind you that one of the best things that you can do for us is go out and rate our podcast. And we do have an easy way to do that now. And that's a uh, rate uh, rate this podcast dot com slash TSOE. Uh, rate this podcast.com slash TSOE. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage.
0: Follow us on Twitter at Voice TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN
4: Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop!
2: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with our Verisage colleague, Matthew Burgess from View Legal in Brisbane, Australia. Matthew, one more thing. Since this is kind of an all Verisage show and we've mentioned so many of our fellows, Let's mention another one, Paul Dunn. I notice on your website, you are involved in B1G1 and your firm has had over 1.2 million impacts. Can you describe that and how that's uh, seen by your customers?
3: Yeah, and it's an interesting one, Ron. We actually, we spoke about this at Verisage Down Under and uh, we've struggled with that a little bit. I, we're probably from the, the Warren Buffett type school of of giving in that we we're not necessarily it's it's, we say it that's a personal decision it's not one that we necessarily go out of our way to to talk about um and and paul's got a totally different view and and obviously paul's been as you have been just such an enormous impact on my life so it's it's about us understanding paul's approach and and trying to meld it with our approach a little bit so yes it is on our website you've got to go digging for it uh because we 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 don't sort of put it out there really loudly but we we think it's important to at least show that we're part of that but it's not something that we have as a centerpiece as to what we do we, we say it's a personal decision that we make and it, it comes out of our profits it's nothing that the customer sort of directs us to do or or otherwise you know has an opinion on so it's but for us Ron it, it's been really really important and, and a really good thing particularly for the way it's set up allows all of our team members to get interested in particular projects in particular areas that can add a lot of value. And I think the big thing, and I just loved your session on Christensen the other week. I think the big thing that we're doubling down on is, well, how can we be part of that community and still be aligned with a lot of the principles out of the, uh, what was it? The prosperity paradox.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. I was thinking about it was when I was looking at your website that maybe this is does more for a recruitment of team members to get, to attract talent rather than so much impact on the customers. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. Well, Matthew, you've written 23 books. And how many of those are children's books?
3: Yeah, look, I'd probably at least about half a dozen, I'd say, Ron, and then that was where that all started. We, um, yeah, for, for personal reasons, it was important for us for, to help our little ones to, to learn to read and that we, we don't have TV. I mean, at the time we didn't have any internet or iPads or anything else like that. We're very technology, which I know sounds slightly ironic, given how much I seem to be talking about technology in my business. But we are. Uh, I reckon if Steve Jobs doesn't give his didn't That's give right. his kids an iPad, then I shouldn't do either. I shouldn't do that either. And uh, yeah, maybe he knows so, yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, might, he might be on something there. So we we got rid of the t- telly as well, and uh, as much as we loved it. And so their story time was a really important thing. And, and I think it was really important for our journey, though, Ron, back to value pricing and subscription, that, you know, the way that industry has been democratised and allows anyone, like someone from downtown Brisbane uh, in the back streets of Australia to publish multiple, multiple books, is it's extraordinary. And and to do be able to do so at, at price points that work for us to actually make the whole thing happen is... Uh, I think there's a lot of analogy. There's been a lot of analogies for us in the book publishing process that we've been able to take and implant directly into our business model as well.
2: Right. Well, I've always thought that writing a children's book would be harder than writing almost any other type of book. I mean, William F. Buckley, I think, wrote one in his entire career, and this is a guy that wrote, I don't know, 100 books or something. <laughs> he wow. said it was the most difficult. So that tells you something. But I want to ask you about your book, The Dream Enabler. Uh, this came out in 2014, you were kind enough to send me a copy and it's just absorbing because you tell these stories, these real human drama stories from your practice and your experience as a lawyer dealing with high net worth families, Ed and I are going to do a show on inequality. So I want to ask you about something you wrote in the dream enabler. You said the most common problem faced by high net wealth families is alcoholism. Is yeah. that true?
3: Uh, I mean, this is just one experience, and I'd probably iterate it and, and just say, even say substances as a whole. I, I think, yeah, it, it absolutely is, and it, it's probably hidden more easily because of the wealth I've got to, to try to manage the issue, but it it is demoralising for a lot of these families. The, the money of itself is not necessarily the, you know, the one-way ticket to happiness, and it, it's been a real open. For, and these are... You know, these are ultra wealthy. These are these are billion you know, the billions and billions sure. of dollars worth of assets and, and they often, in total candidness, will say, I wish I didn't have this. For in terms of what it's done to our family and, and where this is going to end for us and where it's for some of us already ended, it would actually be better. And it, look, I know people that, that don't have billions of dollars to their neighbours like, Oh, sure, you know, <laughs> first world grow on.
0: Right. Uh,
3: but but it is—it's deadly serious. And these people, you know, they go to the toilet the same number of times we go to each day, and they—they they suffer. They—they they go through all the same issues we go through, and a lot of those issues are just magnified astronomically by having serious wealth.
2: I've got to ask you about this too, because it's—it's it's an you know an axiom that's try, it, it, people try and debunk it, and that's the whole you know from rag from rags to rags in three generations, and you and you lay this out in the book, but you. This is true, isn't it? In your experience, that three it does take about three generations to dissipate wealth that's been created by the first.
3: Yeah, look, and, and I've got a very uh, narrow view, Ron, because I can only really speak about what I've seen firsthand. But it it absolutely it's it's a huge issue, and 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 if you look at them at the macro level, the the system is set up to do that. I mean, each country, even Australia sort of brags, I don't have death duties. Well, well, they do? It's just that a lot of the death duties, you don't even have to die. <laughs> you still have to pay them. So the the system, you know, it's rigged and it, you know, and then look, if we, if it was a more le- left-leaning analysis, you say, well, it's good that the system's rigged. We're, we're transferring wealth right. uh, from one, from one part of the community to the next on a, on a rolling basis. I'm not going to get into the, Politics of it. It was more just observing that you know it's it's very easy to take the moral high ground uh, when you haven't actually seen the other side firsthand.
2: Right. I, I love how you quoted Warren Buffett, and he said a very rich person should leave their kids enough to do anything, but not enough to do nothing.
3: <laughs> I <laughs> yes.
2: think that that's beautiful. I just you know since you deal with the top one percent or or at least a segment of them, and in you have experience. How do you think about inequality? Is that a big issue to you, just in general?
3: No, it, it's not. Ron, and maybe I've been listening to too many episodes of the Solar Enterprise. I mean, it, it to me, it's actually the exact opposite. I I take very little media in uh, at all, but something came up on my feet just this morning that Bill Gates has gone and spent, I don't know, $500 million or something on a new boat. So you look at that it's face face. Value and go. Oh, is that, you know that's just totally inappropriate. Oh, if you're looking at it through that lens, another lens would say, well, every single thing of use in our community has started with the Bill Gates of that generation investing to buy the hydrogen-powered boat, and and democratizing that technology, and then and then making it available for the rest of the community. So it's a, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a very stark and blunt view on that. Ron and and I am blessed because I get to see people firsthand and I see what they do and I see what they invest in and I see that they yes they might be doing it to make money but a lot of them are doing it to make money to allow them to go and do more things again so it's it's a a self fulfilling prophecy right right and
2: and I just have to mention because I just love this you'd also sent me a copy of your best ever 101 lawyer jokes (laughs) (laughs) and I love the disclaimer on this warning content may be considered offensive particularly to lawyers. <laughs> but my favorite joke in there, Matthew, and I actually saw you tell this at a talk you gave, but is how how many lawyer jokes are there? And inevitably, when you ask somebody that, they'll, they'll literally say infinite or millions. <laughs> and you say, no, no, there's only one. The rest are true stories.
3: <laughs> and, the, and the true, true story is if you add it up the sales of all the other 22 books, times it by about 10, you still wouldn't get to the number of sales that we've got for our <laughs> and, and that's
2: something you can update probably for the rest of your life. I would imagine you collect one every day. Probably.
3: I get, I get, I get a check from Amazon every month only because of that book. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Matthew, this is going to be great. I can't wait to hold you over on the bonus episode for our Patreon issues, where we're going to take a deeper dive into subscription. So thank you. Thank you so much for appearing. This has just been wonderful. I know it's early there in Brisbane for you, but, uh, this has just been a fantastic
3: conversation. So oh, thank you. T- thank you to you and Ed, Ron. What you share each week is unbelievable. And um, we're just so, so grateful that we get to to be with you every single week. So thank you.
2: Excellent. Ed, what uh, do we have coming up next week?
3: Next
1: week, Ron, we're going to do an update as it comes in fast and furious on our latest thinking on
2: subscription. Excellent. Kind of a part three. Or I, lo- I love it. I look forward to it. I'll see you in 167 hours.
1: This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage transforming the way people think and work. So their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 PM Eastern. That's 1 PM Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.
0: Thanks again.